But let's get into the word today. I'm so excited. We are starting a new series. Some of you have been, oh man, three months of strength to strength. I'm, I'm over it. Uh, I was actually intending to make this talk the capstone or the last talk of the Strength to Strength series. But then as I was studying, I was like, man, this just needs to be a series on its own. And so that's what turned out. And now as I'm looking at part one, I'm realizing, man, part one needs to be a series on its own. So if it feels like we're going through a lot of material, it's because we are. Um, so step one, buckle your safety belts. And step two, let's, let's pray for God to lead us, okay? Father in heaven, we need you every hour. And so in this hour, we pray that you would supply our heart need. We need to hear from the living God, not just some nice ideas that have been put together. We need to open up the Bible and realize that you are speaking to us. God, please send us your Holy Spirit. I pray also just that you would cast a new vision in our hearts. Or maybe it's an old vision and we just need to recover it. But today, God, we just give you permission to do and fulfill whatever it is that you are sending your word out to fulfill. Thanks in advance for doing it, because we pray in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. When I say these words, what comes to your mind? I have a dream. Do you realize that it was uh, just three days ago, April 4? It marked the 50th anniversary since MLK's death, April 4, 1968. And still, that phrase, I have a dream, man, doesn't that just like stir your hearts deeply? Um, Dreams do that. A compelling dream does that. It stirs us, it inspires us, and it moves us to step up, to step out, to act and live and be and do in ways that maybe we wouldn't had we not been driven by a dream. Do you have a dream? (laughs) God has a dream. MLK had a dream. Paul had a dream. Paul had a dream in Acts chapter 16. I don't know if you remember this story, but in Acts chapter 16, Paul had just started his second missionary tour. He had started a tour. uh, It was, this is on the on the heels of Acts chapter 15, where Paul and his buddy Barnabas, they were about to go out on their second missionary tour. They were about to go visit the churches. They were about to plant new churches. But then Paul and Barnabas had a split. You remember that story? In Acts chapter 16, Paul picks a new partner. His name is Silas. And they go, Silas, and I think they, eventually on that tour, they bring Timothy along with them. But in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 8, there's something very interesting. Paul wants to go to the province of Asia. And then it says repeatedly in verses 6, 7, and 8 that the Holy Spirit prohibited Paul. That the Holy Spirit kept Paul from going this way. That the Holy Spirit kept Paul from going that way. That the Holy Spirit kept Paul from moving forward in mission. And I imagine in those few verses, there's a lot of white space there, you know, not a lot of detail, but I imagine Paul's frustration mounting, Paul's frustration growing. But then in Acts 16, verse 9, Paul has a dream. Do you remember this dream? It's a very simple dream. It's a dream of a man who is like waving him down. And Paul, in his dream, he knows that he is a man from Macedonia. And this man is saying, come help us. And the next morning, Paul wakes up his buddies. We're going. (laughs) Door after door is closed, but a dream unlocks 
a mission field. This is what dreams do. Dreams drive us to move forward in mission. And over the last three months, we've been looking at seeking God, sharing life, and serving the world. How do we do that? But today, what I want us to consider over the next three weeks is as we look at serving the world and what that really means, is there a dream that drives you to serve the world? I don't want to, I don't want to create a culture where we are serving the world just because we have to. I don't want to create a, a community of faith that says, hey, we need you to serve here because we literally need you to serve here. <laughs> if you don't, then nobody else will. I don't want to create a culture of, of desperate necessity. I want to create a culture of service that is driven by a dream. Amen. And God has a dream. Maybe you've seen that dream before. Maybe you've heard it before. But I want us to recover and rediscover what, what the Bible calls the three angels' messages. Because this is a dream that drives us to serve. It's a dream that moves us forward, even when there seems to be a closed door after closed door after closed door. This dream will drive you and me forward. Are you ready to explore this dream? I'm excited. I I tell you what, I don't know if you can tell, but but I'm excited to actually study this stuff. This is stuff that I get super... uh, like I start talking faster than my, than my thoughts can keep up with. Anyway, so let, let's dig into this. Uh, this is what we're going to explore. We're going to look at Revelation 14 over the next three weeks. Today, what we're going to do is not, we're not going to take a look at the messages uh, in detail. What we're going to look at is the runway leading up to those messages. Okay? So Revelation 14 is obviously preceded by Revelation 13 which is also preceded by Revelation 12, okay? So this is what we're going to do. Before we look at the tree of uh, the three angels' messages, we're going to look at the forest that surrounds it, okay? So broad overview. Like I said, lots of material. Buckle up. Let's go. Revelation chapter 12. Go with me. Revelation chapter 12. And we're taking a look at the heart of Revelation. I don't know if you're aware, but Hebrew authors, Jewish authors often packed their, their most powerful punchline right in the heart of their literary unit. And so Revelation 12, 13, 14 is really the heart of Revelation. As we look at Revelation 12, we're going to see snapshots of the great controversy. And I, I'm just, Ron and Linda, let me return this Sabbath School Quarterly to you right now. <laughs> okay. Um, the Sabbath School Quarterly is preparation for the end time for the adults. This is actually really timely stuff. And so we're going to Revelation chapter 12. And, you know, I'll, I'll admit that we could probably spend hours and hours just pouring through the details, but what we're doing is just the, the flyover, okay? So please uh, allow me that grace just to fly over. Uh, allow me not to have to go through every single detail. One of these days, if you let me, we'll do it. We'll, do it. we'll go through it. We'll invite the community. We'll just break it down. We'll break it down. But here we go. Revelation 12, and what we're going to find are three snapshots Three snapshots of the great controversy. I'm in Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1 through 6. I'm reading from the New King James. If you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. I'm there. All right, Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So it's a woman clothed with heavenly light. Verse 2, it says, adds more detail to this woman. It says, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. It's a picture in prophetic symbols of God's people awaiting the Messiah. 
Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, ever since Adam and Eve went to the voting booth and decided for, or excuse me, against God and for themselves, ever since there's been this curse, but God gave a promise that, that through the woman's seed, there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. That was there, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel promise. And ever since, the enemy has been aware that, whoa, one day, someone's going to come from the human lineage to crush my head. Now, if you're the serpent, that's not good news, right? <laughs> and so how does that serpent respond? In verse 3, the Bible says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. According to verse 9, just kind of looking ahead, this great dragon is Satan himself. In verse 4, the Bible says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. In other words, the enemy has been waiting for the promised Messiah just as much and even more so than humanity has. Satan has been waiting for the Messiah, trying to kill him. No wonder when Moses was born and there was this miraculous deliverance of a baby, no wonder uh, Satan was trying to, to wipe out a generation. He knew that there was some prophecy to, to be fulfilled there. It's no wonder that all of these things happened all throughout, that, that he inspired uh, Cain to kill Abel, that he did all these things. Why? Because he had this expectation that there would be a Messiah. This is the snapshot of the great controversy pre-Christ, okay, on earth. And then we see in verses 5 and 6 that she bore a male child. So now this is the actual arrival, the advent, the first coming of Jesus. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So even though the dragon was hot in wait for the male child, Jesus was victorious over the dragon. Amen. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. All right. So first snapshot of the great controversy is the, it's, it's kind of a, a sweep of the Old Testament. All, verses 1 through 6 is a description of the Old Testament history right there. Satan's waiting for the promised Messiah just as much as humanity is and Satan's trying to kill him, but Jesus is victorious. Amen. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell, right? Promise made, promise fulfilled. The New Testament kicks in, and here's Jesus. He is victorious. He raises from the dead. He ascends to heaven and is caught up to God's throne. And in verse 7, because of what Jesus has done on earth, there is another warfare that is waged in heaven. Verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, some of us may kind of look at this and say, okay, this was like pre-creation. This is when Satan was uh, kind of kicked out of heaven for his rebellion and things like that. But in the context, this is actually happening as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. Do you realize that even after the creation of the world, Satan still had access to heaven? And the, the reason why we say that is because in Job, in the book Job, yeah, you see that here is, is God, you know, well after the creation of humanity, and in the heavenly councils, Satan shows up, and Satan claims, hey, this is my place. Satan is asked the question, where are you coming from? And do you remember Satan's answer in Job chapter 1? He says, I came from roaming about, walking back and forth on the earth. 
What is he saying? I was staking claim to my territory. That's, that's an idiom. That's a Hebrew idiom for when someone buys a territory, they're examining their place. And Job, in the book of Job, Satan is saying, look, that's, that's my territory. And that's why God says, hmm, have you considered my servant Job? His life seems to reveal that's not completely your territory. Ooh, does your life reveal that? Does my life reveal that? I pray so. That God would be able to look on me and say, no, this is, this is not your home, Satan. <laughs> This is God's home. All right? So here, uh, as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, Satan is formally, kind of permanently, given no place in heaven. Why? Because at Calvary, it was revealed. The fullness of God's love was revealed, and the fullness of Satan's schemes were revealed. That if Satan were truly to have his way, he would end up killing God. Okay? Angels... At that point, unfallen angels had no sympathy for this fallen foe. And that's why in verse 8, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of this Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Man. Can you imagine how, how happy that loud voice is when it's saying this? That the accuser of the brethren, nah, 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 has been silenced. <laughs> because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, because I serve a risen Savior, we don't have to listen to that voice of falsehood and lies any longer. Verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Wow. And so here, we've got two snapshots of the great controversy so far. A snapshot of the controversy on earth. Satan is waiting and waging war against this woman who is about to bear the male child. And then because the male child has overcome... Because Jesus has gone to Calvary, has gone through the empty tomb, and now is ascended to heaven, because of that, that, the great controversy that was on earth is now waged in heaven. And as a result, now salvation belongs to our God. Now the dragon is cast out. And so third phase, third snapshot of the great controversy, if you will, it goes from earth to heaven and then back to earth, except in a more emphatic sort of way. Okay, so it starts on earth, goes to heaven, and back to earth, where we see in verse 13. So if the dragon has been reaching after the male child, keeps failing, keeps failing, in verse 13, he goes back and reverts his attention to the woman, God's people. Verse 13, Revelation chapter 12. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. I love this fact. I don't know if you've caught the pattern yet. That in Revelation 12, every time the dragon uh, kind of mounts an attempt or mounts an attack, his schemes are, are kind of skewed. <laughs> his schemes just come to nothing. And I want you to know something. If you're feeling under the full court press of the enemy, realize that God is the constant winner and Satan is the constant loser. Okay? Find courage today. You may feel like you're losing the battle, but Jesus has already won that battle. 
Greater is he who is in you than he that is in this world. It says in verse 14, But the woman, even though the dragon was persecuting over and over, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the... What is the next word in your Bible? Presence of the... The serpent. Interesting. Okay, so this dragon that has been attacking, attacking, attacking is now described as a serpent. And it's during this intensified snapshot of the great controversy back on earth where Satan is now attacking God's church that he goes from dragon mode of persecuting and violence and coercion to serpent mode of deception and subtlety and even popularity. And this is the time of the Dark Ages. Uh, when, when the church of Christ, the Christian church, went in its apostate phase. And it was more popular to be a Christian than not. And as a result, many, many, many deceptions came in. And again, this is, this is detail and stuff that, that we can get into later on. But I want us to see just kind of the scope. What God is presenting here is a snapshot of the great controversy. And it's all mounting. It's all leading up towards the end time phase that he's getting to. Revelation 12, verse 17, the Bible says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He couldn't get the male child. (laughs) He can't get the woman. And so now what does the dragon turn his attention to? And he went to make war with who? The rest of her children. Maybe your Bible says the remnant of her seed or the rest of her offspring. And what are the, the key characteristics of this remnant, this end time people of God? They keep the commandments of God and what else do they have? They have the testimony of Jesus. Interesting that the very things that were lost in that phase of apostate Christianity, loyalty to God through his law, and a real picture of who God is through the testimony of Jesus. Those things are recovered through the remnant. They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. All right, so this is the snapshot of the great controversy, and it's just kind of launching us now into this end-time assault, this end-time scheme that Satan has. So we go from Revelation 12, the three snapshots of the great controversy. Now we go to Revelation 13, where we put a magnifying glass on what the enemy is trying to do against God's end-time people, all right? And what we're going to see here is we're seeing two counterfeits. Two what? Two counterfeits. These are Satan's end-time scheme. Two counterfeits in Satan's end-time scheme. All right, the first counterfeit in verse 1 of chapter 13, the Bible says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea before Godzilla, there was Revelation 13.1. All right, this is pretty intense. Okay, now he sees a beast, and we, if you've studied Bible prophecy, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 7 and things like that, beasts are representative of kingdoms, okay? So this is a power, an entity that is rising from an area of population from the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Man, again, the detail we're not going to get deeply into. But I want us to see something. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. Leopard, bear, lion. Where have you seen those three animals in connection before? Yeah, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, where we see those same beasts. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. All right, so there's a relationship between the dragon that was persecuting the male child, the woman, and now the remnant. There is a relationship between the dragon and this first beast. The dragon is giving authority, almost commissioning, sending out 
this first beast. And what's very interesting is that, as we said here, we're going to see two counterfeits in Satan's end time scheme. This is a counterfeit Jesus. Did you hear what I said? It's a counterfeit Jesus. You notice that when this beast comes to, to, to kind of step forward in its mission, where, what, what marks, uh, where is he coming up from at the beginning of his mission? In verse 1, he says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, right? Coming up out of water. Interesting, when Jesus started his public ministry, what marked the beginning of his public ministry? The baptism, coming up out of the waters of the Jordan River. And when God spoke to him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he was investing him with authority, just as much as the dragon is investing this beast with authority, giving him his, his authority, his power, his throne. Interestingly, in verse 3, Revelation 13, verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. To be mortally wounded is more than just a paper cut, right? To be mortally wounded means to be wounded to death. But notice, and his deadly wound was healed. This beast, just like Jesus, suffered a deathly uh, wound. (laughs) More than a wound. Yeah, Jesus was crucified. But he rose from the dead. Amen? (laughs) And here, this second beast that rose from the sea was given power and authority from someone else. This beast from the sea was also mortally wounded and, in a sense, resurrected. Okay? So we're seeing that, that really, Satan's end-time scheme is to kind of present a, a counterfeit Jesus, a twin to the second person of the Godhead. Very interesting. I mean, we could go through a lot of other details. Uh, notice in verse 4, so they worship the dragon who gave authority, authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? So, in other words, worshiping the beast, you're worshiping the dragon. Worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping the Father. When they say, who is like the beast? Uh, very interesting that Jesus, another name for Jesus is Michael, and in Hebrew, that name is a question. Who is like God? All right, so the parallels are very, very, it's, it's almost eerie, but it's very intentional. John is drawing up this revelation, or God is giving John this revelation that what Satan is trying to do at the very end of time is to place a substitute or a counterfeit for salvation. Instead of salvation through Christ, it's salvation through an antichrist. Do you follow? Yes or no? Yeah? And again, we could go into a lot more detail, but I want us to see the broad sweep. Remember, we're getting to the dream, the dream of Revelation 14, and this is all part of the runway. Satan keeps losing, Jesus keeps winning. Satan keeps losing, Jesus keeps winning. And then in Revelation 13, Satan uh, kind of mounts a, an end-time onslaught, an end-time strike, and he's using two counterfeits. We've only looked at one so far. So he, he uses a counterfeit Christ, and the second one is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. Go to Revelation 13, verse 11. Revelation 13, verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to do what? To worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Very interesting. This second beast acts as a PR manager, so to speak, for the first beast. This second beast, whatever this power is, is moving people, not to itself, but moving people to the first beast, to give homage to the first beast, which, by the way, is very successful. According to Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. This isn't speaking about worshiping God. This is speaking about worshiping the beast. 
So if we were to continue this description of the, the second counterfeit, it says in verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. All very much in parallel with what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do works for Jesus. In fact, you read the book of Acts of the Apostles and you see the Holy Spirit. It's really not Acts of the Apostles. It's Acts of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Moving through Peter, James, John, Paul, all these guys, all these people. The church was empowered by the Holy Spirit, leading people to the risen Christ. But here, a counterfeit Holy Spirit is leading people to the Antichrist. Do you follow the picture so far? Yes or no? Yeah? It's pretty intense. It gets pretty dark. It gets pretty bleak because it says in verse 16, he causes all, not just some, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And this is the work, this is the counterfeit work of the counterfeit Holy Spirit. The genuine Holy Spirit, I believe, is the one who seals us for God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says it very plainly, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit when you've believed. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it says that this seal belongs to you. Those who are belonging to the Lord are sealed with this. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who really makes us belong to the Father. It's beautiful. And so what we're seeing here in Satan's end time scheme is that he as dragon has commissioned a first beast and now has a third beast, or sorry, a a second beast that is kind of drawing attention to the first. What we see is a false trinity. It's a counterfeit trinity. And this is Satan's end time scheme. Not just to say, hey, 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 God is is not for you. He is against you. He's not just putting a sign on his his sweater saying, honk if you hate Jesus. No, This uh, this is not blatant opposition. This is subtle deception and substitution. This is Satan's end time scheme. And if we were to stop the story right there, if John were to kind of like, uh, you know, come out of vision right there, I imagine John would be weeping his eyes out. This is terrible. How is the gospel going to end like this, where all the earth worships a false system of salvation? Praise the Lord, the dream comes in. (laughs) This is where God picks up his dream, and it's in Revelation chapter 14. Um, Let me just share this here quickly. Um, I want us to be aware that, you know, as we're kind of looking through these things, this is not just, uh, this is not pointless. This is not just fluff. But this is an opportunity to be aware because recognize there is nothing that the great deceiver fears so much as that we shall become acquainted with his devices. Man, he fears that, Okay. So by looking at prophecy, I mean, we were talking about this in our adult Sabbath school class. Some of us uh, know people, or maybe we resonate with an attitude that has been kind of fearful of looking into Daniel and Revelation, or looking into prophecy because it kind of strikes fear in our hearts. But I tell you what, Satan is afraid when you start studying prophecy. <laughs> Satan is afraid. Why? Because he realizes that we're, we're not ignorant of his schemes anymore. All right? That's Great Controversy, page 516. Nothing that the great deceiver fears so much 
is that we shall become acquainted with his devices. So what are those devices? Uh, two counterfeits. It's a counterfeit Christ and a counterfeit Holy Spirit. So really, man, just simple appeal before we move on. If you don't want to be duped by a counterfeit Christ and a counterfeit Holy Spirit, get to know the genuine Jesus. Get to know the genuine Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, it's been told to me that um, those who work with money, bank tellers, you know, cashiers, FBI agents, whatever, that when they're trying to discern counterfeits from genuine, like a $100 bill, they, they don't cl- gather and collect all the counterfeits that they possibly can in order to tell the genuine. They just spend time with the genuine. They know how it feels. They know how it smells. They know how much it weighs. They know exactly what it looks like. So if anything passes through their hands that is not genuine, they know it for sure. So if you want to be acquainted with, with the devices of the enemy, get acquainted with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amen? All right. So Revelation 14 is where we get into the dream. The, the story doesn't stop in Revelation 13. It continues. God has a dream. And I want us to note the key elements of this dream. Three key elements, three key players. When we look at Revelation 14, three components to God's end time dream. And it's this. God has a people. God has a message. And God has a harvest. You ready? Revelation 14. Let's check it out. Then I looked. Praise the Lord. (laughs) So John is seeing this terrible horror movie just kind of pan out in front of him where the whole earth is following after the beast. And it's as if his camera shifts, pans over this way, and he looks up and looks a little higher. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him... 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Ah, so there are some who don't have the mark of the beast. Praise the Lord. Okay. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. (laughs) They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. In other words, the people who are following the Lamb, they have a unique experience of the gospel of Jesus. They have a unique experience with the Lamb that others cannot necessarily sing about. And in verse 4 it says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. In other words, they, they, they did not follow after falsehood and false versions of Christianity. These are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Wow, what a description. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They follow the Lord fully. I want that to be my, my epitaph, you know? <laughs> I want that to be on my headstone, that I followed the Lamb wherever He goes. He's redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. This is the people that God has in his dream. There are people who follow the Lamb, who are faithful to him no matter what the cost, as true to duty as a needle to the pole. God also has not just a people, but a people who share a message. And in verse 6, the message is, is outlined. In verse 6, Revelation 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell where? What does the Bible say? 
those who dwell on the earth. What are those who dwell on the earth doing at this time? According to Revelation 13, verse 8, those who dwell on the earth are worshiping the beast. This is an end-time message at a time when, uh, again, if you're just kind of visualizing, John has seen all the havoc that, that the enemy and his two counterfeits have been working here on earth. And then he looks on Mount Zion and there's this people who are following the Lamb. And in the midst of it, says there's an angel flying in the midst of heaven, kind of bridging the gap. And this angel has the everlasting gospel to preach to those who are dwelling on the earth, who have fallen sway to this false system, of, this substitute system of salvation putting self in the place of God, and this everlasting gospel is meant as a final appeal. This is the message that they can respond to. Verse 6, or sorry, verse, yeah, verse 6, it says, those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. We're going to get into detail next week when we're at the library. We're going to get into detail as to, as to what the meaning of these messages is all about. <clears throat> and Oh man, I'm so excited for that. But I'm not going to get into it right now. But know that this is an everlasting gospel whose intended target audience is those who have fallen sway to the Antichrist. Those who have let a, a substitute Jesus rule in their hearts. They need to hear the everlasting gospel. I say they as if it's separate from me. But we need to hear the everlasting gospel. We do. This gospel continues in verse 8. The second angel follows, saying, Babylon is fallen, it's fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath for fornication. We're going to get into all of this next week. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of of his indignation. What? This is the everlasting gospel? I thought this was the everlasting gospel. Come on. This is not good news. Next week, we're going to take a look at it, break it down. We're going to see how this is all the everlasting gospel. It's so beautiful. But the point is this. These three messages is sent from heaven. They are sent from heaven to a world that is in desperate need of a savior. God has a people. God has a message. And as a result of this message, in verse 14, the next phase of John's vision, of this dream that God has, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So who are we looking at? Who are we looking at in this verse? We're looking at Jesus, yeah. And he is described as a farmer, we're looking at Jesus, the King of Kings, sitting on a throne, but we're looking at him as a farmer. He has a, a golden crown on his head, but in his hand he has a what? A sharp sickle. Sickles are used for, for harvesting. And in verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on, on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is, what's the next word in your Bible? Ripe. The harvest of the earth is ripe. Question. Prior to verse 15, has the, is the harvest ripe, yes or no? No. The time for ripeness is right then. Right then. In other words, everything leading up to verse 15 is, is producing a ripe harvest. Do you follow that? Yes or no? Yeah? 
So when we look at this, this dream, as we're seeking to recover, what is the dream that, that causes us to serve the world? It's a dream of three angels. It's a dream that God has of, of a people who share a message, who ripen the harvest for his soon return. Hold on. I don't know if I'm saying this compellingly or clearly. <laughs> God has a dream of a people who share a message that results in a harvest that's ready for the second coming. In other words, that whatever the three angels' messages mean, we'll take a look at it next week, okay? But whatever those three angels' messages mean, their effect is that they are essentially a catalyst to producing a ripe harvest that prepares the way for the second coming. Are the three angels' messages important, yes or no? Yeah, because if we were to remove that, there would be no fertilizer for the harvest. Do you follow? There would be no harvest without those messages. Were we to remove the people who share that message, there would be no harvest. Friends, I want to see the harvest. (laughs) I want to be part of that harvest. I want to see the fulfillment of God saying, Lo, this is my God whom we have waited for. I want to experience that. I know I talked about my headstone and capstone, whatever. No, no, no. I want to be there when I see it happen. I don't want to have to pop out of some six foot of soil to get there. No, I want to see Jesus coming for me. How does that happen? Apparently, it's through a people who have a message that ripen the harvest. So whatever these three angels' messages are, they are the catalyst and fertilizer for this soon-to-be-ripened harvest. Mm. So here's the key takeaway The dream that God has is a dream that drives us forward in mission. This dream is supposed to allow you and I to kind of put our service, our ministry, into perspective. I don't know, maybe maybe you get caught in the routine of what it is that you do for people or for your church or for your neighbors or for your family. I want to give you permission today to recast your daily routine your ministry to your family, your ministry at church, your ministry to the community, your conversations with your neighbors, that program that you're planning, whatever it is that you are putting yourself in and pouring yourself into ministry, I want to give you permission today to recast it in Revelation 14 terms and say, whoa, what I am doing is part of proclaiming a message that prepares a harvest for Jesus' soon return. You may think that that little thing that you're working on, the thing that's stressing you out, may not have much ripple effect for eternity. But it's sharing a message that produces a harvest that prepares for the soon coming of Jesus. When you get up in the morning and take care of household duties for your little ones, mothers, fathers, I want you to know that through your loving acts, you're proclaiming a message that prepares a harvest that paves the way for Jesus' soon return. As you're planning week after week that Sabbath school class, as you're preparing for kids' crafts and things like that, you're proclaiming a message that produces a harvest that prepares the way for Jesus to return. As you're wondering whether you should talk to that neighbor, or as you're kind of engaging conversation with the coworker, or as you just kneel to pray once again for that family member who seems so hardened up, what you're doing, your simple efforts are sharing a message that produces a harvest that prepares the way for the soon return of Jesus. You may think it's insignificant, 
But God has a dream. You may feel like doors have closed, but God has a dream. And let that dream compel you. Say, okay, what I am up to today, what I am up to this week, what I am up to with my church, what I am up to with my ministry partner, what I am up to here and there, in the workplace, in the household, in the classroom, you're proclaiming a message that prepares a harvest, that paves the way for Jesus to return. Do I need to repeat myself again? Okay. <laughs> and that's a simple appeal. Will you see your ministry in terms that God sees it? It's not just some little thing. You're doing something that God has prophesied about. <laughs> You're doing something that God has prophesied about. So, appeal today. Consecrate your hearts to this one who is the constant winner. Satan is the constant loser. I don't know what kinds of doubts he's been planting in your minds. But earlier this week, there's a promise that Jesus had to remind me of. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. If you feel like your work in the Lord is in vain, if you feel like you haven't even gotten to, to put your hand to the plow, like, wait, 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 I want to put my hand to work <laughs> in a way. There is a work that you are doing, that you can do, that is not in vain in the Lord. And I hope that this quick survey, this look at this, this I would say it's a sneak peek. We haven't even gotten past the tip of the iceberg. Okay? But I hope that you'd be able to connect the dots and recast your service for God in light of his dream. Are you in? God has a dream. God has a dream. And I want us to rediscover that today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I don't know why it is um, that you would look to us. (laughs) I mean, obviously, angels are much better messengers than we are. And yet, you look to humanity to reach humanity. Jesus, you modeled that yourself. You became flesh to dwell among us. And so, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of stepping into the gospel, stepping into that stream of redemptive history, being part of what you are doing to seek and save the lost. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would recognize that that the simple efforts, the ministries that we've committed to, the responsibilities that maybe that you've been impressing upon our hearts to take on that we haven't yet. Lord, I pray that all of these things would be seen in the light of how you see them, that we would see it in the light of your dream. God, I pray that as we, as a, you know, as a community of faith, become one year old, so to speak, that we would recover the dream that you have, that we would be part of fulfilling your dream here in Castle Rock and beyond. But Father, I want to pray for anyone of us who may feel as though our work in the Lord has been in vain. Maybe a door has been shut. Maybe a relationship has been terminated. Maybe a a witnessing effort has been rejected. I don't know what the case. But Lord, I pray that you would just rouse us once again. Make us steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord, I want to be 
the kind of person that you see, that John saw in that vision, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Father, I pray that for each and every one of us, each and every one of our households. Lord, consecrate our hearts afresh today. May we follow the Lamb wherever you lead. Help us to connect the dots and recast our ministry, our efforts, in the littlest of spheres and in the biggest, in light of how you see it. Thank you so much, Father. In Jesus' name, with the family's saying, Amen. Amen. Amen.